My favorite part of the Serve Roanoke video has to be the goalie sleeping on the job. <laughs> that was awesome. A great shot. And thank you for serving this week. Thank you for, you know, when we, when we gather our time and energy and we invest in this community, it makes a difference. And when we do it with no strings attached, it's a beautiful picture of the love of Christ. So thank you for, for doing your part. And uh, if you weren't able to join us this year, we're planning to do it again next year. And uh, we look forward to that. Please jump in with us. We're continuing to walk through the Gospel of John, and I want to invite you to do something this morning uh, that I have not talked about, I don't think, in a while, and that is to deepen your hunger for God's Word. There's probably nothing that I can do as a pastor that's more significant or more important than to help you cultivate your own hunger for God, an appetite for God's Word. An appetite that would make you hungry every day to read it, to pray it, to obey God's word, uh, to open it between Sundays, not just to wait till next week, but to open your Bible uh, three, four, five, six days a week and to feast on the word of God. And what I want to do this morning is try to show you something that I think will make you more hungry. I want to show you something I think will help you to be hungry for God's word and, and really grow in discovering the gospel in the whole Bible. So this first slide says uh, the gospel in the whole Bible. And what I, I'm sorry that it's so small for those of you who are two-thirds of the way back and over 50. <laughs> Bear with me here. Uh, it says the gospel in the whole Bible, in case you can't see it. But I wrote it too small, so thanks for your patience. It, I, I'm convinced that if you discover that the gospel is in the whole Bible from beginning to end that you will feed yourself on the Word of God in a far more uh, consistent way. And so what I want to do today is help you uh, learn to discover the daily nourishment that comes from Scripture and, and really to see that the gospel of Jesus is not just a New Testament idea. It's not just in the, in the last, uh, say, 20% of the pages of this book. It's... it's deeply woven into the fabric of Scripture. The gospel of Christ, uh, the gospel of Jesus is so deeply woven into the fabric of Scripture that you can find it in every book of the Bible. It's in Genesis. It's in Psalms. It's in Isaiah. Jesus said the Psalms and the prophets, uh, the, the Word of God, the Torah, the whole Bible, it testifies of me. And so we believe that, and, and we want to dig into Scripture. And often you'll not only find it to be the case that, that the gospel is found in every book of Scripture, but sometimes you'll even find it on every page, in verses, just everywhere if you have eyes to see it. So that's what I want to do today is try to help you see how to discover the gospel in the whole Bible. I think it'll help you to eat and drink and be nourished by God's word. And you'll grow stronger and stronger every day as a believer. And so um, let me show you what I mean. This second slide is basically I'm trying to show you the gospel of John at a glance. So the gospel of John was written to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every gospel was written for that purpose, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel writers, they write to give an account of the life and ministry and and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the gospel a unique genre in the Bible. So you have four books of the Bible that are, that are called gospels, right? And the purpose of those gospels is to tell you who Jesus was, what he came to do, and to call you to believe in him and to rest your faith in him. But you wouldn't want to stop there. 
Like, you wouldn't want to stop with just reading the Gospel of John at the, what we could call the compositional level. Like, the Gospel of John was written at the compositional level. It's, just, it's, it's a standalone book, the Gospel of John. You should read it that way, but you wouldn't want to stop there. And, and what I want to show you that is, is that each individual book of the Bible should also be then read at the macro level, at the big picture level. So this arc that goes over this slide is designed to show you from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is a story. And John, as an apostle and as a gospel writer, is, is building his individual story out of and in relation to and under the whole Bible story from Genesis to Revelation. We know that because the apostles teach us this. The apostles teach us how to read the Bible when they write. For example, let me show you. John 1.1. 1, 1. In John 1, chapter 1, it says something like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And everything that was made was made through Him. Nothing was made in the whole world that was not made through Jesus Christ. First four verses of John's Gospel. What's John doing? He's situating his story in the context of the whole arc of the Bible, the big story narrative, the macro level. He's saying the very God who I'm about to introduce to you through the person of Jesus Christ, he's the one who made everything in the beginning, and he did it through the Son. Jesus, the Son of God, is the agent of creation. You see it in chapter 1, verse 1. Or fast forward to chapter 12, where we are today, and drop down to verse 41. Look at verse 41. And I want to show you why I'm saying John is connecting his book to the larger book of the Bible. Verse 41 says this. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. After this citation of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, after, after John, the writer of the gospel, calls on Isaiah to make his point, he then says in verse 41, Isaiah spoke these things because he had Jesus in mind. The prophet Isaiah was looking forward. The prophet Isaiah not only had a vision of God, but he had a vision of the glory of God. No, the prophet Isaiah not only had a vision of the glory of God, but John the apostle says that glory that Isaiah saw was the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory that comes from God. Jesus is the glory that comes from God. So John, the writer of this gospel, says that the story of Jesus Christ is the story of the whole Bible. And therefore, the unbelief of Israel, who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, was foreseen by Scripture. Even more, not just foreseen, necessitated by the promise of Scripture. Therefore, they could not believe. Look at verse 39 again. Verse 39 says, therefore they could not believe. And then watch this. Back up to verse 36, and it'll help you to see verse 36 a little bit differently. In verse 36, it says, when Jesus had spoken these things, everything that's been going on in chapter 12, when Jesus had spoken these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs, they did not believe. Why is Jesus hiding himself? I thought, I thought if you wanted somebody to believe in you or trust you, you'd stay with them. You'd be present among them. Jesus moves away from them, hides himself 
it's really an act of judgment. It's really an act of judgment. John says in his writing of the story, watch Jesus as he moves away from them. It's an act of judgment. Why? Because what's happening here is the people of God are, are, have been, they've been unbelieving, so rejecting of the signs, so rejecting of who the Messiah is that God gives them over to their own hearts, their own hardening, their own stubbornness, their own blindness. Therefore, they could not believe. So at the macro level, as you think big picture about the gospel of John, John is saying that that Jesus and his gospel stand squarely in the context of the history of redemption, the history of what God is doing with his people from beginning to end. By and large, the nation of Israel refused to embrace the Messiah and the new covenant community that Jesus is gathering to himself. Israel's leaders, listen, Israel's, Israel's leaders thought they could see, but they were blind chapter 9. Israel's leaders thought they knew, thought they had faith, but they were hardened. Verse 40 says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see and hear and understand and turn, and I would heal them. And yet, this is really interesting, because of the way John presents this, it's clear that this inability to believe is not God's fault. As if there's some sort of um, fatalism or destiny that's at work so that they couldn't believe. That's not the way John puts it. John makes it clear, uh, verse 37, that they are the ones who are marked by sustained unbelief. They are the ones whose hearts have been hardened by unbelief. They are the ones who, in verse 43, exchange the glory of God for the glory of man. They would prefer the glory of man over the glory of God. They love the glory of man more than the glory of God, he says, in verse 43. In John's gospel, that's one of the most egregious of all mistakes that you could make. To love the glory of man and the approval of man and the fear of man and all the things that appear to come from the power and beauty of man, to love the glory of man, verse 43, more than the glory of God, that's one of the most egregious mistakes you could ever make in reading John's gospel. John is saying, don't exchange the glory of man for the glory of God. Don't do that. So, so yes, it says he has blinded their eyes, meaning God has blinded their eyes and God has hardened their hearts. Yes, that is the case, but it is an act of God's judgment. It's not some sort of fatalism that's at, that's at work, not sort of, some sort of destiny that's at work. It's an act of God's judgment that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts because they have lived in sustained unbelief for so long and sustained rejection of the Messiah for so long and loving the glory of man more than the glory of God. I should pause there and just say, they kept, they, uh, the glory of man kept them from seeing the glory of God. Don't let that happen to you. Don't, don't let this world's confused, disordered understanding of what to love and not to love, don't let it blind you from the glory of God. Meaning, don't let it keep you from seeing Jesus Christ, who is the glory who comes from God. And all that he stands for. 
Here's another way to think about it. Uh, one author wrote it this way. John allows this judgment, the, the, the Isaiah prophecy that he's quoting here, John allows this judgment to stand in all of its severity without adding or subtracting from it. But he does this as an evangelist, as somebody writing an invitation. He's saying, he, he takes the Isaiah, this, if you go read Isaiah, this is, a, this is such a powerful, severe judgment that's being pronounced. And yet in the midst of that pronounced judgment, John, the evangelist, the gospel writer, is inviting us not to make the same mistake that the people of God made when they rejected Jesus as Messiah. He's doing it. John is, John is using Isaiah to make a strong invitation, to make an appeal to the gospel, which brings us to the next point. And the next point is this, that any place you look in John's gospel, and you can do this with lots of books of the Bible, almost every book of the Bible you can do this with. In some places it's a little more prevalent. Um, but in, in John's gospel, for example, you can drill down and not just not just look above at the macro level, but drill down and look below at the micro level, at the, at, the, uh, at the smaller sort of microcosm level, and you can see and discover the gospel. And I want, so I want to show you this. Um, I, I want to show you how there's a micro invitation going on here, a, a mini invitation, a mini gospel invitation going on here right in the middle of this storyline in verse 40. So look at verse 40. So let me, let me try to, to illustrate it this way. So there's all, the word micro is used for all sorts of things. Micro cars, micro pens, micro braids, micro houses, micro tattoos. Apparently micro tattoos are all the rage. It's a small tattoo, like the size of a dime. One of our interns has one. He was just showing it to me on the front row, but he slipped out. So now you know exactly who it was. He's got a little micro tattoo right here. It says 4-0. It's 4-0. I said, what's that? He said, Psalm 40. I'm like, dude, that's cool. Now, for all the parents who are mad at me because I just approved of tattoos, like, you're like, man, I'm, I am not coming back to this church. Okay, don't, don't, I'm not approving or disapproving. I'm just telling you that a micro tattoo is a small tattoo. Okay, it's the size of a dime. But, it's, but look, th here's the thing. You can see it very clearly. It's artistically done so that you can see the fine features of it. It's a small, it's a micro version. Uh, what I want you to see is anytime you open the Bible and you pull open chapter in a or a verse of Scripture, you can often discover a micro picture of the gospel. That's exactly what you have in verse 40. You have a micro display of the gospel. Three basic elements of the gospel. See if you can find them in verse 40. Understanding, repentance, and then what's the last part? Healing. If you're trying to figure out what Christianity is and what it's all about, if you're trying to discover what the gospel is, um, the gospel has certain basic elements in it. And in this particular passage, you find these three basic elements understanding, repentance, and healing. Embedded, so embedded in the midst of this judgment against unbelieving Israel, John, the gospel writer, is making an invitation. He's saying, listen, he's saying, understand, see and understand, repent and be healed. So I want to 
kind of unfold those three for you briefly in the time that we have left. See and understand what? Verse 40, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts. What's John talking about? He's talking about the kind of thing that all the spiritual writers talk about. There's something you can see if your eyes are enabled to see it. There's something you can understand if your heart is willing to hear and receive it. What is that? It's that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he has come on your behalf to bring you back to God. It's the gospel. What what John wants you to do is see and understand that God's grace has been shown to you in Jesus Christ, that he's come for you. He's come to rescue you, that he's come to demonstrate his love for you and his, his concern to bring you back. He's hoping they will see and understand their need for God, their distance and separation from the Lord, and their desire to trust in the Lord with all of their heart. He wants wants them to discover how to trust in God because they have no longer trusted in God or they stopped trusting or they never really trusted in God. What does John, the writer of this gospel, want us to see and hear and understand? The thing he keeps saying about, it's the thing he keeps saying over and over again in the Gospel of John, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we think it's the same author, in the book of Revelation, same author. He's saying when you see him, you've seen God, you see his grace and mercy, he came to give himself and bring you back. It's the Gospel. What, What should you see and understand? You should see and understand your basic need for Christ. And that apart from that, You'll never be what God wants you to be. You'll never experience what God wants you to experience. Verse 38 kind of reinforces this. He's quoting Isaiah saying, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Listen, that's really interesting, Johannine language. You see John saying over and over again, that which you've seen, that which you've heard. Remember this? That which you've seen, that which you've heard. That's that's why he adopts the Isaiah language right there in verse 38. Who has believed our message, our report? John the evangelist is saying, the report I'm giving you about Jesus is true and accurate. You can trust this. You should believe in him. And then it says in the next line, again, this is Isaiah 53, verse 1, that's being quoted in verse 38. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen, this is so rich. You could just study this verse all day long. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? He's the revealing of God. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the power of God been revealed? Anybody who will see that in Jesus, the Son of God, that's God. He brings power. He's brought so much power. He's healing people all throughout the gospel. He's brought so much power. He walks up to a tomb in John chapter 11 and says to Lazarus, come out, right? And one pastor said if he hadn't named Lazarus, the whole graveyard would have awakened the arm of the lord the power of god has been revealed in jesus christ that's why john is quoting isaiah that's why this book of the gospel of john is situated in the whole context of the whole bible because this because the whole bible is about jesus christ and finds its fulfillment in him see and understand so If you're wondering what the gospel is, it begins with understanding what God has done for us in Jesus. That's it. Second part of the gospel in verse 40. 
Second part of the micro-invitation, micro-gospel. Repentance. If you don't have repentance, you don't have gospel. If you don't have turning away from something to God, turning away from sin or self or Satan or the evil dominion of the world or the evil drawing and desires of your life, if you're not turning away from something, there's no gospel. It might be religion. It might be spiritual. It might seem good. But if you don't have a turning away, there's no gospel. Look at the language in verse, 30, uh, verse 40. Look at the language again, verse 40. Lest they see and understand. That's the first part. And then what's it say? And what verb? Turn. You see it? Just a tiny little word right there in the middle of it. And turn and repent. That's the language of the Bible. The Bible over and over again talks about turning. Uh, so I'm moving in this direction. I'm walking this way. I'm doing my own thing. Going my, uh, uh, what does the proverb say? There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. I'm walking in my own way. I'm walking in my own way. I'm, wait, I hear the gospel call. God is inviting me to turn. I got to turn. I got to do a 180 and return to the one who has called me back to himself. If there's no turning, there's no gospel. You see this over and over again in the New Testament. This is the way John reminds us. Come back. Come back to me. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What for? To bring us back to him to redeem us. You know the story of the prodigal sons, right? The prodigal son and the older brother, the self-righteous brother. You gotta turn, you gotta get up from the mess and turn away and come back to the father. Or the self-righteous older brother, he has to turn away from himself and embrace the love that the father has for both sons. Repentance, so listen, if you're thinking about Christianity in a way that does not have a central feature of the gospel called repentance, it's not Christianity. Repentance is woven into the fabric of scripture. You can find it in the micro invitations of the gospel like this all throughout the Bible. There's understanding, you gotta have understanding. Secondly, you need repentance, the turning, the turning away from sin or self or Satan or whatever direction you're headed that's not of Christ. And then there's a third part. This is the best part. You should save the best for last, right? This is the best part. Who doesn't want to be healed? You know, when you get sick, or someone you love gets sick, you get, it's just, it's humbling. It's really humbling. It, it can be even humiliating to be sick and to need other people, to need healing. This is what I love about verse 40. Who does John have in mind would be saying the words, and I would heal them? Who do you think John's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus came to his own. We read it at the top, of the, at the, top of, the, uh, of the hour. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But he would love to have healed them. I, he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I have wept over you. How I have longed for you. I would love to heal you. 
Look at those words. I want you to hear those words very personally this morning. And I would heal them at the end of verse 40. Because this basic gospel element, this is, this is part of, this is an essential element of the gospel. Recognizing your sickness, recognizing your need, and hearing Jesus speak these words over you. I would heal you. I would like to heal you. I would love to heal you and make you whole. That's what Jesus speaks to us this morning. You know, the unbelieving Israel here that he's, he's uh, that, that are rejecting him and that, and that John is describing, they, they didn't think they were sick. In fact, Jesus said something like this, um, I didn't come to help those who don't think they're sick because the sick have no need of a physician, right? You remember this? The sick don't need a physician. I came to heal those who know they're sick. I came to heal and help those who know they need me. Jesus, I want you to hear the gospel this morning. Jesus speaks to you if you're willing to admit. And we're not talking just about physical sickness this morning. In fact, we're primarily not talking about physical sickness. Because clearly in this context, these Jews who are unbelieving are not struggling with physical sickness. They have a sickness of the soul that seems to be impenetrable, unable to be helped. John says, learn from them. Don't be like that. Recognize the sickness of your soul and hear the words of Jesus this morning. I would like to heal you. I would like to make you whole. I would heal them. If you will see and hear, if you will turn, if you will receive the healing of the gospel, I will heal you. Again, the motivation behind all three of these would be the love of God. It's the love of God that's motivating the coming of Jesus to bring understanding. It's the love of God that motivates repentance and a call, uh, the call of the Father to bring us back to himself. It's the love of God that motivates healing. What, what's behind Jesus saying, I would heal you? Just so he can show off his superpowers? No. So he can show off his compassion. So he can show you how much he loves you. Because you don't heal people that you don't care about. Nobody does that. Healing and compassion always go together. And the motivation behind the willingness to heal helpless and sick, soul-sick people is the love of God. Right? The motivation behind this healing, I would heal them, has to be the love of God. Really, that's what John's whole gospel is about, how God's love so moved the Son of God to come on our behalf and to give himself for us. The love of God is motivating this healing. Love is what motivates and makes healing possible. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Think about the power of love motivating healing. Uh, we, let me give you a little backstory. So about 19 and a half years ago, a little boy was born very sick. He was about 24 weeks, five days, very premature, uh, and you know, 40 weeks of gestation, so just over halfway there. He weighed about a pound and a half when he was in the neonatal intensive care unit and uh, his nurse, his neonatal intensive care unit nurse, wrote this letter to him last week. It's postmarked July the 12th, uh, 
2019. And I want to read it to you. It's addressed to Mr. Jacob Shem. Listen to this. My dearest Jacob, congratulations. You did it. You graduated from high school. That is great. I'm so proud of you. I love you. I've loved you since the day I walked into the NICU, and there you were. A tiny little guy who had already been through so much. He was born on a non-birthing floor in the hallway at an elevator. I don't know if you heard that story, that part of how he came into the world. Mrs. Shem was by herself. I was on my way back to the hospital, and it was really an unmitigated medical disaster. But God's grace is so rich. A tiny guy who already had been through so much. I looked at you that day, and my heart became yours. You struggled to make it off the ventilator, and then off the CPAP machine, and then to a crib, and then off of oxygen altogether. After you went home, I visited a few times because I wanted to know how you were progressing. I was so excited to get your graduation notice. I wish you all the happiness and success that there is. If you ever find yourself having a hard time, depressed and down, you should remember this. Always know there's a silly old retired nurse <laughs> always know that there's a silly old retired nurse in Durham who loves you very much. Love Gina Triampho. The day that I walked into the unit my heart became yours. Now if a NICU nurse who's never met this little boy could over 19 years display true, genuine affection, even if not a believer. What kind of glimpse is that into the kind of affection and love that God has set on you from the moment he knew you? The moment, just, I want you to hear those words in application of the gospel. The moment I saw you, I knew I loved you. That is powerful. And what you're looking for in your life is more of that and less stuff, less things, less events. What you're really looking for that'll satisfy your soul is to know that the affection of God has been set on you deeply in and through Jesus Christ. And until you embrace that, you'll never know healing. This is a woman who's given her life to healing. God has given his life to heal you, your whole person, body and soul. Congratulations. Because you are the recipient of the affection of God.
Don't exchange the glory of man for some, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Don't exchange the rich glory of God for some cheap, plastic imitation glory. It'll break the moment you get it out of the Happy Meal package. They exchange the glory of man for the glory of God. Don't do it. Father, thank you for Jesus, who the moment he knew us, set his affection on us to rescue, to heal, to bring wholeness. God, I pray for every person in this room. You know them all by name. I pray that your powerful love would move to heal and restore and make whole again. Make us truly human and help us to flourish. And let our lives be characterized by this song. Let our lives be characterized by this song and may it voice our hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing together in response. John, we lose.